I'm reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you want to follow me. That's where I am. I think we can move away from Easter too quickly, don't you? Did you have a good time celebrating Easter last week? Did you break out the champagne? Did you have a party? Because it's one of those really high... Is this okay? Are you hearing me, Harry? Is this, is this coming through? Are you... Is this, is this coming through? That's a bit pointless, me saying that, because if it's not coming through, you're not going to say anything, are you? You won't be able to hear me. Sorry, I was told about that the other day. Correction, so I'm hoping that, that you can hear me. Okay, 1 Corinthians 15. Um, because I think we can move away from this too quickly. Someone has said, if you take out Christmas, all you do is lose two chapters of Matthew and two chapters of Luke. But if you take out Easter, you lose the entire New Testament. It really is the festival we should celebrate and keep on celebrating. This is called by some the low Sunday. It's not at all, is it? It's the higher Sunday. We keep going higher and higher, don't we? So 1 Corinthians 15. And um, one of Paul's most lengthy arguments. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, And then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ, the firstfruits, 
Then, when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom of, to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it's clear that this doesn't include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he's done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. But someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And star differs from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. 
But thanks be to God, he gives us a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Last week you were thinking of the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday morning. I, I hope you were anyway, uh, like the rest of the Church of Jesus Christ across this country and across the world, I guess, unless you were Orthodox, and then I guess you have Easter on a slightly different Sunday, isn't that right? Anyway, the danger is we think, well, Christ is raised from the dead, wonderful trick, God's good at doing tricks, he can do anything, he's raised Christ from the dead, wonderful, give him a big tick, so what? Well, there's lots of so what, actually, that comes from that. But here's one of them. Did you see that as Paul brings his long argument to a close, he says a therefore in verse 58, the last verse of the chapter, he says therefore. And whenever you're speaking in Scripture, you always have to know what the therefore is there for. And it speaks and connects it with what's gone before. And he's been speaking about the resurrection. And he says, in light of the resurrection, in view of what all I've been saying... We can rejoice that our names are written in heaven. We're going to go be with Jesus in heaven forevermore. No, he doesn't say that. In fact, the Bible never says that in any place at all. He has a very curious therefore. He says, in light of the resurrection and the nature of the resurrection, it means that what we do now matters. None of it is in vain. He's been talking about the resurrection something that will happen to us in the future. And he says, in light of that, it transforms the way we live now. Do you see what he says? Always, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I hope we understand that your work in the Lord does not mean some work is sacred and some work is secular. We've already dismissed that myth, haven't we? All honorable work is honorable to God. Everything is a work for the Lord. We have to recapture this idea of vocation, your calling. People are called to be preachers, but they are called to be farmers, bus drivers, managers of big companies, bank managers, politicians, and lots more besides. That's the calling. So when he says your work, your, the work of the Lord, your labor in the Lord, he's talking about whatever you're doing. And he says the resurrection makes sense of it. So we celebrate. Now I was going to invite you to say to one another what you're going to be doing this week. Because it's important we understand that whatever you're doing this week matters. It really does matter. The resurrection of Jesus makes it matter. You see, there's some people in, in Corinth who are... Uh, well, they're all struggling about what it is to be spiritual. And the, Paul writes his letter to the Corinthians, and indeed to everybody, but he writes it to Corinthians because some of them are misled about what it is to be a spiritual person, what it is to be truly spiritual. For example, in chapter 13, verse 1, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. And perhaps he's picking up a thought there that, that uh, the Corinthians have imagined that speaking in tongues is to speak in the tongues of angels and therefore they have a, arrived at true spirituality. So who needs resurrection if we've already got there? 
And they're beginning to deny this resurrection. So verse 12 in our chapter says, um, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So he has to address this issue. This is the longest sustained argument in any of his letters. It's very important. In reply to their whose spirituality, he has to tell them what's at the heart of the gospel. What is at the heart of the gospel is that a crucified Messiah comes in chapter 1, who was raised from the dead comes in chapter 15. Those two parallel truths, we're looking at the second of those two. So the problem is that some of the members of the church in Corinth were denying that there's a bodily resurrection for believers. I hope you understand you are going to be raised bodily one day with a real body. That's not kind of a metaphor for dying and going to be with the Lord in glory, some unbodily place. You are going to have a resurrection to a bodily form. But some people are saying that's not going to happen. So he starts by telling them what they believe. And he gives this little summary in the first few verses. I was, what I received, I passed on to you, just like he says in communion times. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That He was buried, he was raised on the third day, and then he lists all these people. So that little section is bookended by this is what you believe. This is what the gospel is all about. We believe that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. Don't we believe that? You can nod if you want to and say, yes, Charles, I do believe that because we believe Jesus is raised from the dead, right? It's crucial. This is not some conjuring trick with bones or something. It's really important because, you know, the world is not getting better and better and better as people tell us it is. We're getting better and better. It's not getting better and better, nor is it getting worse and worse either. It's just the world. Because if it was getting better and better, why would Jesus need to come and sort us out? But he did. What it needed was some interference from God. God needed to come and do something, and Easter tells us what he did. Nothing less than the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ would solve the problems of the world. It's crucial we understand that. He's come as king. And he says, this is what we, we believe. We believe this stuff. And then he lists all the eyewitnesses. To the Corinthians, he says, get in your boats. Go to Israel. You can talk to these people. They're still alive. Some have died. But you can go and say, hey, did you see Jesus alive? And they go, yes, I did. I could touch him, talk to him. I watched him eat something. He was really here. It's not a vision, not a figment of my imagination. Paul lists their names. Interestingly, ladies, it was always ladies who first saw Jesus in all the Gospels, but they're not mentioned here because their witness doesn't count for anything in the first century. I'm sorry about that, but it's true. Hard to take. But they weren't credible witnesses. So Paul doesn't mention them. He just mentions the men and says, this is what we believe. But then he goes on to say, but it's illogical to believe that this has happened to Jesus and not to believe that it's happened it will happen one day to us. On the basis of Christ's resurrection, we can be sure of the certainty of our own resurrection. And then he goes in verse 12 to tell us about that. He says, if Christ isn't raised from the dead, we're all wasting our time and we will be all far better off going to Lime Cross Nursery now and having a cup of coffee and stop wasting our time. What does he say? If there's no resurrection from the dead, well, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. We're false witnesses about God. Um, the dead are not raised. 
So Christ, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. Here's a little list. The gospel is useless, the New Testament is worthless, your faith is pointless, hope is groundless, death is endless, and Christianity is hopeless. There you go, write the whole thing off. If Christ is not raised from the dead, because the New Testament is not about a series of doctrines, it's about a person. Jesus Christ. No other religion claims that their leader was raised from the dead. No one else. All pagans know that people don't, don't come alive after death. Everyone knows that. Except Christians. Jesus came alive again. And sin is the root cause of death. And if death has not been defeated, it must mean that sin hasn't been dealt with. But if the Messiah has not been raised, then we're still in a world where sin reigns unchecked. So the foundational Christian belief that God has dealt with our sin in Christ would be idle speculation. So he says, you talk about no bodily resurrection, you're dicing with death, literally. There's no sort of bolt-on doctrine. So then he goes on to say, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And that changes everything. We don't have words to express what's happened there. This isn't God playing tricks with us, doing a little bit of conjuring or just a little bit of improvement. Christ has done something that completely requires us to think new about everything. Up to this point, no one had ever come back from the dead permanently. Ever. So when this happened, you've suddenly got to see the world completely differently, haven't you? Because you can't say, oh yeah, this happened in 1843, it happened again in 1923 as well. We've got a history of this, we know what's happened. Nobody could go back. This was a one-off event. But the bodily resurrection of Jesus is of, of, of Jesus means that the bodily resurrection of believers is inevitable and necessary. It's going to lead on. He goes on to say, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now I must tread carefully here because we've got farmers in the congregation who know about first fruits and all that sort of stuff and sowing seeds. So I mustn't show my ignorance. But the whole point is you have a first fruit that proves that the harvest is coming. Passover was when the first crop of barley was presented to the Lord and Pentecost, seven weeks later, was a time when the first fruits of the wheat harvest were presented with the expectation of the full harvest to come. Here's the first fruits, Lord, and we're looking forward to the gaining the big harvest coming in. So seen in terms of the Exodus, Passover celebrated the Jews' deliverance from Egypt. Pentecost they were at Sinai receiving the law, but that wasn't where they were going to stay. All this looked forward to the time when they entered the land and became fruitful. So Jesus is the first fruits of a great harvest that's still to come when all Jesus' people will be raised as he has been raised. It's inevitable. His resurrection proves it. And the normal Jewish belief that God's people would inherit the land, Jesus neatly changes that in the Sermon on the Mount by saying, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, not the land. He's talking to Jews. And up to that point, they would have been and said, 
the meek shall inherit the land because that was the land that God gave them. But Jesus neatly tells them that God is doing a bigger thing and says the meek shall inherit the earth. All God's people. And the standard Jewish belief that both Mary and Martha in John 11 affirmed to Jesus, we believe that there is a resurrection coming. And Jesus says, well, I am the resurrection. All Jews or most Jews believe that the resurrection would happen at the end of time to everyone together. What was strange about Jesus was that God took one man and made it happen before the end of time, in the midst of time, as a promise it would happen at the end of time. And somehow God has done a new thing and brought the end into the, be- into the now, brought the future into the present. God has been, Jesus has been raised at the start of a general resurrection. It was necessary because death is the final enemy to be overcome. I've mentioned it before, but the first thing Jesus is recorded as saying is the time has come in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. What time? Have you ever asked yourself that question? The first thing that Mark records Jesus as saying in the Gospels is the time has come. What time? Well, Daniel tells us what time it was. If you go back to your book of Daniel, you'll find lots of apocalyptic visions. One of them is of a great big man. And he has that, Nebuchadnezzar has that one, and he's the uh, head of gold, and then it's likened to four empires, and there's a later one happening there. We won't go through those now, but the end of those visions always end with something like a rock in Daniel 2, a rock that is not cut with hands, coming and destroying all those empires. The empires, of course, are the, Medes, are the Babylonians, which is Nebuchadnezzar, followed by the Medes and Persians, followed by the Greeks, and followed by the Romans. And the Romans are the mighty ones. And if you read that vision in Roman days, you'd have said, how accurate was that? But both of them lead to God doing something. Let me read to to you. Because it's worth having. Because I think this is where Jesus is talking about the time has come. We need to know what he was doing. This gives a special import, if I can find it. Okay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. Right? Did you get that? Something that God was doing 600 years before Jesus came. So when Jesus stands and says the time has come, I believe in part at least he's saying what Daniel prophesied is actually happening. Because the next verse he says is the kingdom of God is near. All right? This kingdom that Daniel said would one day come and destroy all the other kingdoms, that kingdom has come. And so Jesus was enthroned on the cross last week on Good Friday when you reflected on that thought looking least like a king that you could ever imagine. But he was on the cross because that was the point at which he was glorified. And when he was raised to life, God proved without a shadow of a doubt that this small rock, not cut with hands, has actually the potential and will indeed destroy all the kingdoms of this earth. So his discussions with the chief priests, his discussions with Pilate was really a coming together, a conflict of these two kingdoms. And Jesus triumphed 
place. And that kingdom now is in place. The resurrection says now Jesus is king. So right at the end of Matthew's gospel, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. He has all the authority. Because the kingdoms of this earth are coming to nothing. So with Jesus' resurrection, the worldwide rule of God the King has begun. And even though life appears on the surface as if it carries on the same as it did before with the Romans crushing all opposition and death reigning supreme, the promise of eventual new world of justice and incorruptible life is assured. You see, without bodily resurrection, he goes on to say in chapter 15, life doesn't make sense. If there's no resurrection, he says, if the dead are not raised, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. What's the point of doing anything? It robs everything of value. Nothing is worth anything if it's just not, if we just die, and that's the end of it. Resurrection makes sense of things. What kind of a body? Well, this is where we get certain amounts of confusion. It will be a body. But we notice in verse 44, it says, it will, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And we've un- misunderstood those words. If I read my commentaries right, and the theologians right, it doesn't mean a material, physical body, and then a non-material, spiritual body. It's not talking about how the body is made up. It's talking about what energizes the body. So the natural body is energized by the natural soul. But the spiritual body is a real, physical body that is energized by the Spirit of God. So when Paul declares that flesh and blood cannot inherit God's kingdom, he doesn't mean that physicality will be abolished. Flesh and blood is a technical term for that which is corruptible, heading for death. The contrast is not between what we call physical and non-physical, but between corruptible physicality and non-corruptible physicality. So our model is Jesus. You got him in your mind from last Easter day? He appeared in a body, a body that was transformed, that was a real body. He said, you can touch me, you can see me. I can eat, if I don't, whether he needed to eat or not, I'm not sure. But he certainly could eat. But he could also disappear through a door. He could not be recognized. So he has a body, but it's a transformed body. A body that was perfectly designed for the new world that is coming. In light of that then, Paul makes this surprising conclusion. Let me quote. For Paul, the bodily resurrection doesn't leave us saying, so that's all right, we'll go at the last to join Jesus in a non-bodily platonic heaven. But so then, since the person you are and the world God has made will be gloriously reaffirmed in God's eventual future, you must be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the Lord's work because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Belief in the bodily resurrection includes a belief that what is done in the present, in the body, by the power of the Spirit, will be reaffirmed in the eventual future in ways at which we can presently only guess. Let me give you an example. Some Christians in some parts of the world say, since they believe this world is going to be wrapped up and destroyed, what's the point of taking care of it? What's the point of worrying about the pollution we pump into the atmosphere? If this is Christians talking... 
if the world is one day going to be destroyed. You see where it leads? But the world is not going to be destroyed in that way. It's going to be renewed, remade, reaffirmed. And we are stewards of it. So far from living careless lives, everything we do matters. Because everything we do that honours God will be reaffirmed in this new earth in ways that I can't even begin to guess about. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, we'll be tested by fire. Hay, wood and stubble will be burnt up. But gold, silver and precious stones will last. Wouldn't it be a tragedy when we get our new bodies in this renewed earth to see nothing of our old life at all because it's all been burned up? as pointless and worthless? Wouldn't it rather be very honouring and glad to see fragments of what we did existing for eternity? So this is my word for you this morning, my friends. As you go into the week and do the normal things you normally do, all the routine stuff, that oftentimes we can just put to one side and say, it doesn't really matter. What Paul says here, because of the resurrection of Jesus, it does matter. Everything you do matters. And 1 Corinthians 13, of course, says if you do it without love, it's not worth anything. So we do what we do because we love. We wash up for love of God. We care for our neighbour for love of God. We write an article for a paper for love of God. We represent others for love of God. Whatever we do, We do it for love of God. We tend our gardens because we are stewarding in a small way this beautiful world that God has given us. Everything we do matters. And that will transform the way we see what we do, whether we do things this week with, on our own or with others. We can do it all to the glory of God. So we are Easter people. Go in the grace of God into this coming week. Go and perform acts of outrageous kindness. Speak out for justice. Work for peace. Resist temptation. Love your neighbour. Be creative for everything you do is not in vain. Let me pray. In the beginning, Lord, you chose to rule the earth through the image bearers you had made, living as your stewards of the world. We believe that still pertains. And we are those stewards who recognise that you rule and our stewardship we hold in trust. Therefore, Lord, as we go into this week as your stewards, help us to see your kingdom come And your will be done on earth, in our lives, as it is perfectly done in heaven. That whatever are our responsibilities this week, as we discharge them in the power of your spirit, with your help, for your glory, people will see something of you and give glory to you. Transform the way, Lord, we see our weeks that we may give every effort in every sphere to honour and glorify you. You have given us so much, Lord, and we willingly 
want to walk with you in step with your spirit this week, bringing glory and honour to your wonderful name. Amen.